On today's episode, Atoms for Peace, Containment, and the Peaceful Nuclear Explosion. Yeah, yeah. I would say I'm definitely most interested in the worthless areas. Yeah. Welcome to What's My Thesis. I'm your host, Javier Proenza. Every week, I share the answers I've found to the questions I have. Join me as we explore and expand my worldview through research and ask, what's my thesis? So I wanted to start, we covered the Trinity test briefly, but we're going to be talking about a lot of nuclear tests that took place because I don't think a lot of people even realize how much testing has been done in the world about nuclear technology. But I also wanted to take, you know, last episode was about how people were thinking about the nuclear future before, while everything was still theoretical. And there were some interesting ideas, a very utopian view from H.G. Wells, where the technology would cause an end to all war because it just became too dangerous and there was nowhere to escape to. Then we looked at Isaac Asimov's work where he was talking more concurrently with the development of the actual bomb. It was after the first atomic chain reaction had been theorized. And this is something that we don't experience on a day-to-day basis. This is like, because in my lifetime, I don't think there were any nuclear tests, but I could be wrong. To give us a real sense of what it was like to sort of just be confronted with this new scientific breakthrough, I have a a couple of descriptions of the Trinity tests. I was staring straight ahead with my open left eye covered by a welder's glass, and my right eye remaining open and uncovered. Suddenly, my right eye was blinded by a light which appeared instantaneously, all about without any buildup of intensity. My left eye could see the ball of fire start up like a tremendous bubble or knob-like mushroom. I dropped the glass from my left eye almost immediately and watched the light climb upward. The light intensity fell rapidly, hence did not blind my left eye, but it was still amazingly bright. It turned yellow, then red, and then beautiful purple. At first, it had a translucent character, but shortly turned to a tinted or colored white smoke appearance. The ball of fire seemed to rise in something of a toadstool effect. And the only toadstool... I know is from Mario Kart, but I imagine that it's a mushroom shapey thing. Later, the column proceeded as a cylinder of white smoke. It seemed to move ponderously. A hole was punched through the clouds, but two fog rings appeared well above the white smoke column. There was a spontaneous cheer from the observers. Dr. Von Neumann said that was at least 5,000 tons and probably a lot more. And I love the idea of just this how exciting that is right of course you see that you cheer it's mind-blowing just the 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 sheer force of this thing you take the smallest part of what everything is made of and you split it and you make the parts collide and all of a sudden you have 
this incredible release of energy. It's insane. Uh, and then there's a, a an official report by this guy, Farrell, who wrote, The lighting effects beggared description. The whole country was lighted by searing light with the intensity many times that of the midday sun. It was golden, purple, violet, gray, and blue. It lighted every peak, crevasse, <laughs> crevice, and ridge of the nearby mountain range with the clarity and beauty that cannot be described but must be seen to be imagined. And that just sounds so um, experientially vivid, right? Like he says, you have to see it to believe it. And the things that I'm picturing, just I'm just picturing a, a situation where it's so bright that maybe you can't see shadows. Um, I, I it, like, but again, that's just me speculating. That's me using my imagination. I can't imagine what it must have felt like to be standing there and just seeing this thing happen, and how you must have felt at that moment. How like. Oh my God, that that must have been the most futuristic experience that you could ever have. And even I, I think even now to see something like that would be mind blowing because it's so far in the past that we can't even really conceive of it. We hear about all the dangers, but the actual experience of like, yo, we discovered this thing, you know, and obviously they were building it for weapons technology, but we'll see later that they also had other ideas. They wanted to try to use it for peaceful um, means and we'll see how that goes but that brings us to nuclear tests part one operation alberta from 1942 to 1945 so that's a three-year span and they dropped three bombs operation sandstone is 1946 and they dropped two bombs in that year and then two years later operation crossroads was in 1948 and they dropped three devices or i don't know if they dropped i keep saying dropped they the whole thing is that they tested devices and as we'll see later sometimes they have multiple devices go off at one you know you got these fun new fireworks <laughs> of course there are going to be some tests that you want to try to see what happens hey let's let's tie these two things together and go boom boom instead of just boom but for the most part it was the same number of tests and the same number of devices that went off but the kilotons changed. We're not really going to get too much into that because I don't really know what a kiloton is. But I'm sure it's terrifying. So this brings us to our geopolitical strategies. We're going to cover three of them by the time the series is done. But today we're going to focus on a really important one, which is containment. Containment is a geopolitical strategy to stop the expansion of an enemy. It's best known as what the U.S. used as their foreign policy during the Cold War to prevent the spread of communism. It was a response to a series of moves by the Soviets to increase communist influence in Eastern Europe, China, Korea, Africa, Vietnam, and Latin America. And containment represented a middle ground between detente and rollback. And if you know what those terms mean, great, you're ahead of the curve. We'll talk about them probably next episode. And... This represents a middle ground. So though, so this is the middle and the other two are extremes. Communism was spreading. And so they started to counteract this spread by setting up a few things that are still alive today. And I'm not making any commentary. I'm just trying to be 
as Wikipedia-y as possible, right? Because all of this information for today's episode is all coming from Wikipedia, simply so that I don't accidentally take it from a conspiracy website. Because <laughs> I think that for the most part, you know, maybe some dates would be wrong, but the general sense of paranoia that was at the time was real and I don't want to undermine my basic discussion by accidentally quoting from InfoWars or another or like the opposite which would be like a left-leaning extreme conspiracy website but the important thing about containment is that it's not it wasn't a new idea at the time it wasn't necessarily always called containment but in the 1850s Anti-slavery forces in the United States developed a free soil strategy of containment to stop the expansion of slavery until it collapsed. So, historian James Oakes, again, from Wikipedia, is where I'm getting these quotes. I don't know what the primary sources are for these. The federal government would surround the South with free states, free territories, and free waters, building what they called a cordon of freedom around slavery, hemming it in until the system's own internal weaknesses forced the slave states one by one to abandon slavery. And another example is that in 1937, or from 1937 to 1941, the U.S. tried to contain Japanese expansion in Asia, and Japan reacted to this by attacking Pearl Harbor. So I actually didn't know that that was the inspiration. I always just sort of, as an American... I don't, they don't really tell you, so you just assume that it came out of the blue. <laughs> but it was interesting to find that out. You can't really talk about containment without talking about the Truman Doctrine, which it's, uh, you know how doctrines are, right? There's the Madman Doctrine, which is Nixon was just a nut job. <laughs> and he, he, he thought that that would sort of make anybody not want to mess with him. Uh, and, and I think that that was like straight up his foreign policy thing. Although he spoke to China, I have no idea. I'm out of my depths again. But in March 1947, Truman requested that Congress appropriate $400 million in aid to the Greek and Turkish governments, which were fighting communist subversion. And so he gave this speech asking for these funds, and the speech is often considered to be the beginning of the Cold War. In that speech, Truman pledged to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. So that's basically what the Truman Doctrine is. I don't know what the actual speech was called, but in the speech he portrayed the issue as a mighty clash between totalitarian regimes and free peoples. And the speech marks the adoption of containment as official U.S. policy. So in that speech in 1947, that's when containment begins. Prior to that, we had basically been isolationists. And I don't know, I think that Roosevelt wanted to open trade with Russia. But at, at this point, it was just like, no. And there's a bunch of different reasons that we're not going to get into. I just kind of want, like, for me, the, the thing that's interesting about this is like, okay, we invent this thing and we're like super excited about this new technology, but then the realities of it come where we have to start negotiating <laughs> a new way to function. And that's what, um, what a lot of this episode is about, sort of figuring out, okay, now this we've got this huge destructive force. Now we have to sort of figure out how we're going to live underneath this threat of destruction. 
So containment was one of these things. And there are three interpretations for why he declared the Truman Doctrine. Number one is the orthodox explanation, which is put forth by Herbert Feiss. A series of aggressive Soviet actions in 1945 through 1947 in Poland, Iran, Turkey, and elsewhere awakened the American public to the new danger to freedom to which Truman was responding. People became aware of it, so Truman decided to do something about it. In the revisionist view, which is put forth by William Appleman Williams, which is a fucking awesome name, and last time I read it made me <laughs> laugh to myself, but I didn't want to fake it this time. And to him, Truman's speech was a expression of longstanding American expansionism. So he was just doing what Americans had been wanting to do for a while, which was expand. And... In the real politic view, which is by Lynn E. Davis, Truman was a naive idealist who unnecessarily provoked the Soviets by couching disputes in terms of democracy and freedom that were alien to the communist vision. And that's, there is an ideal slant to sort of simplifying the world the way that Truman was doing. I can definitely see that as a legitimate argument where... It was all good when we had when we were the only ones that had it, but then as soon as Russia had the bomb, everything started to change a little bit. So Truman established a series of measures to contain Soviet influence in Europe. Among these was the Marshall Plan, or the European Recovery Program, and NATO, which is a military alliance between U.S. and Western European nations that was established in 1949. Also important around this time, and still causing a stir in the world. I mean, <laughs> what can you say about the CIA? It is not the most honest organization. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of heroes and whatnot in the CIA. But I do think that there is a sort of need to be paranoid to maintain your relevance thing that happens where like you know we didn't always fuck with everybody this is where it started in 1947 it was established by the national security act and they conducted espionage in foreign lands some of it visible more of it secret and that's one of the things that i didn't rephrase from wikipedia because that guy was proud of that <laughs> <laughs> some of it visible more of it secret basically there's always going to be a problem when there's no transparency right and um yeah they've done horrible things i don't think that anyone can dispute that so because containment required detailed information about communist moves the government relied increasingly on the central intelligence agency so not only did they get founded in 1947 but because of the game that we were playing we started to really fund them and make them more important and some people argue that they're the permanent state right that they're not elected and they're always there and that sometimes presidents have to do things that they don't want to because they're the real force behind everything. Anyway, the Soviet Union's first nuclear tests was in 1949. And there were alternative policies that were considered. One of them was going back to isolationism. The other one was detente. And the third was rollback, which we will discuss later. They have, or rollback in particular has a different name now that 
it's just blunt, but we'll talk about it. Anyway, let's go to Nuclear Tests Part 2, 1951 to 1953. Operation Ranger. And I have no idea what a ranger is. I think the closest thing that I can come up to is Walker, Texas Ranger, which makes me think of the Lone Ranger. I'm sure it has it's some like romanticized American ideal of like someone that's out on the range and is alone. But these names are sometimes romantic. Sometimes they're just well. That that one was 1951, and there were five bombs dropped. Operation Greenhouse was in 1951 as well, and that's four bombs dropped. So as you can see, at this point, they're starting to ramp up. They had two operations and a total of nine bombs in 1951. Oh, wait, no. They went for it, and they busted out with Operation Buster Jangle, <laughs> which is fun. I, I just want, like, I uh, there's such American words, uh, and... They're subtly manly. <laughs> but that was also in 1951, and that was seven bombs, so we're at 16 for 1951. 16 devices and 16 tests. In 16 tests. Uh, then we have Operation Tumble Snapper, <laughs> which I, I think maybe at that point, you know, there were maybe four guys no six guys and the first guy got to name operation ranger the second guy got to name operation greenhouse and then they were running out of tests so they gave uh co-naming rights to buster jangle <laughs> and humble snapper because remember these are guys that may be smart but they're playing with shit that they don't know so uh tumble snapper was 1952 and that was eight devices and eight tests Operation Ivy, which someone thought sounded cool, uh, was in 1952, and that was only two. And then Operation Knothole in 1953, which set off 11 devices. And 1953 brings us to Atoms for Peace, because up until this point, everything had been pretty covert. All of these nuclear tests were sort of done on the hush to some degree and there was really no it was all military and we were just secretive so adams for peace was a speech delivered by eisenhower to the u.n general assembly in new york city on december on december 8th 1953 and if you guys recall he was a general last time we talked about him and we used a quote about him not being happy that we had dropped the bomb because he felt it wasn't necessary and he thought it was a really ugly thing that we shouldn't um, have used in the first place or he didn't want us to be the first ones to use it. So in that speech, Eisenhower says, I feel impelled to speak today in a language that in a sense is new. One which I, who have spent so much of my life in the military profession, would have preferred never to use. That new language is the language of atomic warfare. So as you see, he's really establishing that it is a responsibility. And so he continues, It is with the book of history, and not with its isolated pages, that the United States will ever wish to be identified. My country wants to be constructive, not destructive. It wants agreement, not wars among nations. 
It wants itself to live in freedom and in the confidence that people of every other nation enjoy equally the right of choosing their own way of life. Now, that's all good and well. Obviously, he's trying to smooth things over and acknowledge to people like, yeah, we we understand the power of what we have, but it's interesting that he says the right of choosing their own way of life because, I mean, he's down with choice, but only limited choices, right? He doesn't, there's definitely, that's what the whole thing about containment is. (laughs) Communism is a choice that they don't want people to have access to, so that's why we're taking this approach. I I don't know why they felt it was such a threat, but I can kind of understand why now that capitalism has been sort of allowed to just be itself, uh, you know, in its free market way, wielding ways, I can see how that, you know, unionization and things like that, uh, and the state owning everything, uh, was threatening to people, but I guess that's where they drew the line. It was just like, that is a bridge too far. You can, anyway, continuing with the, with the quotes from the speech, to the making of these fateful decisions, the United States pledges before you and therefore before the world its determination to help solve the fearful atomic dilemma, to devote its entire heart and mind to find the way by which the miraculous inventiveness of man shall not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life. And again, very, it's the 50s, so it's very man-centric way of thinking. So, Adams for Peace, the speech, was the speech, but it also created a program, and the program called also Adams for Peace supplied equipment and information to schools, hospitals, and research institutions within the U.S. and throughout the world. And under that program, the first nuclear reactors in Iran, Israel, and Pakistan were built under the program by American Machine Foundry, which is a company that's known for making bowling equipment. I don't know (laughs) where the overlap in equipment is there, but there you have it. Something, I don't know how how American bowling is. I just associate it with being very American. But I find that interesting because... It goes to that Isaac Asimov distinction where even he makes a distinction between weaponized nuclear technology and just practical nuclear technology, things like nuclear power for reactors and things like that, right? And so um, we were giving all these, we were sharing these technology with places that nowadays are not our friends and we are trying to keep Iran from building its nuclear weapons and all of that stuff. So, so he gives a speech and basically it was a propaganda component of the cold war strategy of containment. He, he knew that the Soviets would reject the proposals he put forth in the speech. So it wasn't an olive branch, but he was trying to comfort the world that was terrified after what we did in Hiroshima and Nagasaki because at this point, it wasn't like in last episode where they didn't really know the destructive force. At this point, it had sunk in how dangerous this thing was, this uh, nuclear bomb was. It really sunk in, and we had seen people die from the radiation and all the 
after effects, the delayed after effects of the the bombs we dropped. So this was sort of a, a way of saying like, hey, we know, I mean, not necessarily like we know we fucked up, but it's like we know we've got this thing and it's pretty strong and we're going to be responsible with it. But also these other guys have it. So he was trying to convince NATO countries these other guys being the Russians. So he was trying to convince NATO countries in Europe to switch from conventional weapons to cheaper nuclear weapons. And I'm assuming they were cheaper because you had to have fewer of them to really deter and fewer planes and whatnot. But Western Europe was pretty freaked out and, and they wanted to know that the U.S. wasn't going to provoke a nuclear war in Europe, right? They're trying to put all these nukes in Europe or we are, the Americans, and the Europeans want to be like, okay, but, like, uh, we don't want you to start shit out here with these things. And this speech was basically to reassure them that we weren't going to, that wasn't the objective, and also that we're just going to be doing a lot of nuclear tests, guys. So don't freak out. We understand that this is a real big responsibility. Let us put nukes in your (laughs) countries. Uh, it'll all be good. We're just chilling. And so he referenced uh, those same great concepts of universal peace and human dignity, which are so clearly etched in the UN Charter and placed emphasis upon the U.S. responsibility for its nuclear actions, past, present, and future. He was presenting an alternative to nuclear brinksmanship. Brinksmanship, according to Wikipedia, is the practice of trying to achieve a desired outcome by pushing a volatile situation to the brink of active conflict. This maneuver of pushing a situation with the opponent to the brink succeeds by forcing the opponent to back down and make concessions. This might be achieved through diplomatic maneuvers by creating the impression that one is willing to use extreme methods rather than concede. During the Cold War, the threat of nuclear force was often used as such an escalating measure. So this speech, again, we're still talking of, about Atoms for Peace, which launched a program which included the sharing of nuclear reactor technology with Iran, Israel, and Pakistan and other places, and the switch from conventional weapons to nuclear weapons in NATO countries. This speech launched a propaganda campaign that sought to manage emotions and address public fears of nuclear armament. It promised peaceful uses for nuclear technology, and it, it's basically a campaign that lasted for years. It was the tipping point for the international focus of peaceful uses of atomic energy. This address laid down the rules of engagement for the new kind of warfare, the Cold War, but it was also the tipping point for international focus on peaceful uses for atomic energy. The speech was important because before it was all done on the hush, all atomic development was under strict secrecy, and that meant that there were no safety protocols or no standards developed. And before the speech, we were centered on developing nuclear weapons to defend against other countries which were developing the same weapons, not to help the peaceful processes. It was an important moment in history because it had been kept quiet. And he made it public discourse and asked the world to support his solution. Eisenhower wanted to solve the fearful atomic dilemma. He said, The miraculous inventiveness of man would not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life. But Eisenhower also approved the National Security Council document that said we needed a massive atomic weapon base 
to deter the Soviet Union from attacking us. During Eisenhower's time in office, our nuclear arsenal grew from 1,000 to 20,000 weapons. Both sides felt an emphatic nuclear arsenal was necessary to deter nuclear war. Which, it kind of makes sense. Or, at the very least, it keeps you from being under the thumb of the person that has it. You can dictate terms. Because if only one side has the power to just wipe out a whole civilization with bombs, that's fucking crazy. Can you imagine? It's almost a good thing <laughs> that it was uh, that Americans weren't the only ones. I don't know. I don't want to stand by that statement, but so like I said, the Adams for Peace program, it opened up nuclear research to civilians and countries that didn't have nuclear technology. And this stopped other countries from developing nuclear weapons and created regulations for use of nuclear power and allowed the technology to be used like in the book Foundation. But there will be problems that come out of this, right? Now, all of that stuff is vulnerable. So Eisenhower argued for a non-proliferation agreement throughout the world and for a stop to the spread of military use of nuclear weapons. Although the nations that already had atomic weapons kept growing their supplies, few other countries developed nuclear weapons. In that sense, the spread had been contained. But it gives those countries that have nukes geopolitical power. Which is why... We don't... <laughs> it's like if you have a room full of people and they all have guns... Maybe... <laughs> or not all of them. If most of them have guns except for like three people in a room out of 10, then you give, you, do you really want to like give someone else a gun at that place? I guess those proportions aren't correct, but it's more like, I don't know. I would guess less than 10 countries have nukes. Just an estimate. I could be completely wrong. I don't know how many NATO countries got nukes from that, but they're at least like what? 200-ish countries. So those are that's a little bit closer, I would say, than 7 out of 10 <laughs> countries with nukes. That sounds fucking crazy. Adams for Peace was the ideological background for the International Atomic Energy Agency and the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, but also gave political cover for the U.S. nuclear buildup and the Cold War arms race. Using the Adams for Peace program, the U.S. exported over 25 tons of highly enriched uranium to 30 countries. Holy shit. <laughs> Mostly to fuel research reactors, now regarded as a proliferation and terrorism risk. Under a similar program, the Soviet Union exported over 11 tons, adding to the risk. So, all of this, like, atomic dick-swinging really left us vulnerable and i mean just basically it was irresponsible again they didn't know what they were messing with they didn't know how horribly dangerous it was all ideological nonsense so this takes us to project candor it was a public relations campaign run by the Eisenhower administration. They started planning it in the spring of 1953, and it was to inform the public of the armaments race. 
They wanted an informed and careful public that would support their government. It set up a series of six-minute nationwide radio TV talks held by administration officials. It was entitled, The Age of Peril, with Eisenhower doing an intro and conclusion segments. And I imagine it was some kind of a monotone scientist. Well, you see, what we have, well, (laughs) it doesn't sound like, what I'm doing doesn't sound like what I imagined, (laughs) unfortunately. It's more of a B-movie from the 50s kind of thing that you would see in MST3K. So this whole program was Eisenhower's response to finding out the Soviets were packing nukes. Eisenhower felt the American public had a right to know the danger the USSR posed. And also, he needed U.S. public support to pay for the nuclear arms race. These talks would create understanding as to why the U.S. had spent vast amounts on nuclear armament. By giving details about our investment in nuclear technology, he was trying to keep Russia from getting crazy, right? He was... Because obviously, they were going to get... These were public statements that Russia was going to be able to get a hold of. Or the, the Soviet Union. I use them interchangeably. But... I obviously understand that they're not the same thing. So he wanted to sort of keep Russia in check and reassure friendly nations of their security, which would be like the NATO countries. It's kind of (laughs) like, I don't know. I don't want to simplify it, but they're these basically two ideologies, and you get protection from one or the other, right? Which is a weird way to break down geopolitics, but basically that is. There's these two main ideologies, communism, um, and I guess they're coming out of the Industrial Revolution, which I don't exactly, off the top of my head, remember the dates (laughs) for that, so I don't know contextually where i'm at but um yeah that means the production stuff was a result of marxist stuff was a result of industrialization i think if i'm not mistaken so he would discuss him and the officials would discuss topics such as the nature of communism, the threat to the United States, and communism at home. So it was a little Red Scare kind of stuff. Um, And Secretary of Treasury George Humphrey felt that telling American people these grim facts about the government were in a, a position... Stating these grim facts before the government was in a position to state concretely what steps the government would take in building a defense against atomic attack, he felt that that was imprudent. So, Secretary Treasury of the, Secretary of Treasury hum, George Humphrey, George Humphrey. I'm not sure why he's chiming in because he's the Secretary of the Treasury, but. 
he was uh, against telling the American people these grim, grim facts before we knew what was going on and how we would take a defense against atomic attack. Right, they didn't have a clear plan as to how they were going to deal with it, and they were being open with what was going on. Um, on top of that, he felt that Operation Candid or Candor would imply that they had been not candid before. And Eisenhower's response, according to Wikipedia, was that free government requires a well-informed public. That brings us to nuclear tests two, Operation Castle, Operation Teapot, <laughs> Operation Castle, 1945, six bombs, Operation Teapot, 1955, 14 devices, Operation Wigwam, 1955, one device. Uh, <laughs> this is just, that's such a weird th- sh- collection of three. Castle Teapot and Wigmam. Operation Project 56 from 1955 to 1956. I think they were just in a rush to give it a title. They're like, we, <laughs> we got these things we need to drop, man. Operation Red Wing. Operation, oh, that was 1956, 17. Operation 57, another one where they were in a rush to squeeze in a quick bomb. Operation Plumbob. <laughs> Plumbob. I wonder what... Uh, I should look what that look that up, but I'm not going to. I wonder if it means something or if it's just a weird phonetic thing. Operation Project 58 and 58A, 1957. Operation Hardtack, 1958. And this is where it goes to like 35. Obviously, Plumbob was 29. <laughs> Maybe Plumbob was just there to um, make you feel like it was less threatening. But Hardtack 1, that's 35. Then there's Operation Argus, which is a DC Comics. I don't know if he always did, but the organization that Steve Trevor, who is the boyfriend of Wonder Woman in some iterations, he is a soldier that works for Argus. And that was 1958, and there were three bombs. And then we got the sequel to Hard Tack, starring 37 bombs in 1958, comes out. Uh, and then, <laughs> then Operation Nougat. 1961 to 1960 and that was 44 i think every time they try to go a little harder they give it a soft name and then they give it a big name once they assert that number and that was 44 tests and it included a one peaceful use test and that brings us to peaceful nuclear explosions it was actually a concept that had some traction from around, well, this is 1961, and the American program was called Project Plowshare. At the peak of the atomic age, the United States federal government initiated Project Plowshare involving peaceful nuclear explosions. 31 nuclear warheads were detonated in 27 tests. 
And the Soviets had a similar program called Nuclear Explosions for National Economy. I always love, like, when you come across these Russian <laughs> names, they're so... I, I mean, communism is very matter-of-fact. Nuclear Explosions for the National Economy, as opposed to Project Plowshare, which I guess is, like, a little bit more metaphorical and poetic, because we're full of shit over here. Not that the Soviets are better than us or anything like that. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, some successful demonstrations of non-combat uses for nuclear explosives include rock blasting, stimulation of tight gas, ke <laughs> chemical element manufacture, unlocking some of the mysteries of the so-called R process of stellar nuclear synthesis. And I looked that up and I forgot what the fuck it was. Probing the composition of Earth's deep crust, creating reflection seismology vibrosis data, which helped geologists, and then follow-on mining and company prospecting. So these are all successfully demonstrated as feasible. The idea was that by exploiting the peaceful uses of the friendly atom in medical applications, earth removal, and later in nuclear power plants... The nuclear industry and government would allay public fears about nuclear technology and promote the acceptance of nuclear weapons. The United States Atomic Energy Commission said the Plowshare Project was intended to highlight the peaceful applications of nuclear explosive devices and thereby create a climate of world opinion that is more favorable to weapons development and tests. So some of the proposed projects under Project Plowshare included widening the Panama Canal, creating a new sea-level waterway through Nicaragua named the Panatomic Canal. And they also thought about cutting paths through mountainous areas for highways and inland river systems that they wanted to connect. They also proposed blasting underground caverns for water, natural gas, and petroleum storage. So just to keep it there. <laughs> oh my god i just got a mental image of that just like exploding a big cavity in the earth underneath so that wow so that you could just store petroleum water and natural gas uh it was also in you know they thought about using it for various mining operations blasting to connect underground aquifers in arizona and then They proposed surface blasting on the western slopes of California's Sacramento Valley for a waterway transportation project. One of the cratering proposals that was almost carried out was Project Chariot. It involved chaining five nuclear thermal devices to create an artificial harbor in Cape Thompson, Alaska. It was never carried out due to concerns for the native populations, and there was little potential for use of the harbor to justify the risk and expense so <laughs> thank goodness they didn't do that because that just sounds ridiculous project Cariel, proposed in 1963 by the atomic energy commission the california division of highways and the santa fe railway proposed using 22 nuclear explosions to make a shortcut through the bristol mountains in the mojave desert And this was so that Interstate 40 and a new rail line could go through the mountains. The first peaceful nuclear explosion blast was called Project Genome, or Gnome. I actually don't know how you spell Genome. I just see, 
gnome with a capital G, and I phonetically pronounce the G as the letter. So it was on December 10th, 1961, in a salt bed 24 miles south of Carlsbad, New Mexico. The explosion released 3.1 kilotons of energy yield at a depth of 1,184 feet. And it made a cavity that was 170 feet wide, I guess, and 80 feet high. The test had many objectives, including the production and recovery of useful radioisotopes, neutron time-of-flight physics, again, something I have no idea what it means, but it sounds like it would have been useful if it worked, geographical studies based on time-seismic source, and this was the only one that was a complete success. The most public objective was to generate steam which could be used to make electricity, and the explosion vented radioactive steam over the press gallery, the press gallery that was called out to confirm that it was safe, so that shit was fucked up. (laughs) Because you're told that it's safe and then you go out there and then you get radioactive steam all over you and it probably doesn't go well from that point. The Project Coach experiment that was to follow this genome test was canceled. So, or gnome test. I love, if it was gnome, I love that it named, they named it after something small. It's like 3.1 kilotons. It'll be small. We'll just hurt a lot of people. There were a number of proof-of-concepts cratering blasts that were conducted. The 1962 sedan plowshare shot was a 104-kiloton detonation in Yucca Flats, Nevada, and it displaced 12 million tons of earth. It created a crater 320 feet deep and 1,280 feet wide. What they were investigating was the use of peaceful nuclear explosives for large-scale earth moving. And here's a quote from Wikipedia again. The project's uncharacteristically large and atmospherically vented sedan nuclear test also led geologists to determine that the Behringer crater was formed as a result of a meteor impact and not from a volcanic eruption, as had earlier been assumed This became the first crater on Earth definitely proven to be from an impact event. The experiment had some pretty bad consequences, though. It led to tracheated water, which I'm not sure what that means, but I'm I'm assuming it makes it undrinkable, so that's what matters. So yeah, so it had tracheated water and the fallout from the radioactive material injected into the atmosphere. The radioactive dust plume rose to 12,000 feet and headed towards the Mississippi River. And then after that, underground testing became mandatory by treaty, which makes sense because that's pretty messed up. 12,000 feet of this radioactive dust just suspended in air and being blown into the Mississippi River, which fucks up your water, uh, tratiates it, or whatever that is. It doesn't sound good. It's a very sciencey word, sciencey sounding word. Moving on, it's bad for the water. However, if the test was conducted in 1965 and after, when improvements in device designs were realized, a hundredfold reduction in radiation release was considered feasible. The 140 kiloton Soviet Shagan nuclear test, comparable in yield to the Sedan test, formed Lake Shagan. 
reportedly used as a watering hole for cattle and human swimming. So <laughs> that sounds pretty Russian. Let's make an artificial lake with a so with a nuclear test. I wonder how that works. I wonder if <laughs> I was going to say I wonder if it just formed naturally after they blasted a hole in earth and like water filled it. But yeah. So at the end of the program, because this program started in 61 and it's about to wind down here in the 70s, uh, at the end of the program, a major objective was freeing natural gas in tight underground reservoir formations. And so they did three nuclear fracking experiments. The third of these experiments was the final peaceful nuclear explosion blast in Project Plowshare. It took place on May 17, 1973, under Fawn Creek, just north of Grand Junction, Colorado. The previous two tests had shown the natural gas produced would be too radioactive for safe use. Three 30-kiloton detonations took place simultaneously at three different depths. The three blast cavities had not connected as hoped, and the gas still remained contaminated and radioactive. It had unacceptable levels. And so I guess what they were trying to do there was blast three cavities into the earth at varying depths. I, I took out the depths because the numbers would have just tripped me up. But what they were hoping to do is that somehow that would vent the radiation and keep the gas from getting contaminated, but it didn't work. But if it had worked... They would have used uh, hundreds of specialized nuclear explosives in the Western Rockies gas fields. And in a 1973 article, at this point, it wasn't going well. Uh, they used the term Project Dubious to describe Operation Plowshare. So by 1974, 82 million had been invested in nuclear gas stimulation technology. And it was estimated that after 25 years of production, only 15 to 40% of the investment would be recovered. The main problem was that the public was afraid that stove burners in California might emit blast radionuclides into family homes. However, the contaminated gas was never channeled into commercial supply lines. So the negative impacts from the plowshare tests generated public opposition and led to the program's termination in 1977. The radioactive debris from 839 U.S. underground nuclear test explosions remains buried in place and has been judged impractical to remove by the DOE, which is the Department of Energy. Funding quietly ended in 1977, and the costs for the program have been estimated at more than $770 million. For that time, for, for the 70s, that's quite a bit of money, I'm assuming. I actually don't know what money was worth back then. Project Plowshare had started with great expectations and high hopes. Planners believed that projects could be completed safely, but they showed less confidence that they could be completed cheaper than conventional methods. And there was just not enough public or congressional support of the projects because it was dangerous stuff. I mean, <laughs> I don't want people like just blowing things up it seems crazy. It must have seemed crazy at the time to to like normal people or to the average person. 
but the i do think it's an interesting thing this whole thing of like using these explosions to put people at ease <laughs> and then they they have these things that just make it really bad so public opinion turns against them i think also the um the cuban missile crisis plays into it there were a couple of projects like i said the last explosion was in 1973 and they closed down in 1977 and project chariot and coach were these two projects that were held up by feasibility studies because they just kept having technical problems and it eventually it was canceled because it was just too expensive to continue and because citizens groups were opposed to some of the plowshare tests they were worried that blast effects from one explosion could dry up active wells or trigger an earthquake but in reality according to wikipedia there were negative impacts from only a few of the 27 nuclear explosions that were done under Project Plowshare. Those were mostly done at the beginning of the project. Like the the explosion where they vented steam onto the press to show them how safe it was. And then the other ones that were really had serious negative impacts were the ones that were a very high yield. And that's like Sedan. Because that's the one that they did an atmospheric test and afterwards they stopped testing from anything that wasn't underground. It's dangerous stuff, man. You can't really control where the wind blows. I remember that during the Fukushima thing, there was a concern about radiation coming out here in California. So it's for real. Those were the two instances early on were when they were having problems with danger to people and in the very high yield scenarios like the sedan test. But there were also other consequences. Blighted land, relocated communities, tritium contaminated water. Oh, I guess that's tritiated, triti tritiated. I guess that's where that comes from. Radioactivity and fallout from debris being hurled high into the atmosphere. All of these were ignored and downplayed until the program was terminated in 1977, due in large part to public opposition. And here's a quote from Wikipedia. Project Plowshare shows how something intended to improve national security can unwittingly do the opposite if it fails to fully consider the social, political, and environmental consequences. And it also underscores that public resentment and opposition can stop projects in their tracks. So that's interesting. I don't have enough vivid... I mean, this is in 77, so obviously I wasn't alive back then. But... Since it's out of my experience, I can't really imagine. <laughs> I'm talking about how cynical I am. <laughs> I just realized. It's, ama it's amazing to think that you can voice opposition against something this dangerous and stop it. It seems like we have a harder time nowadays with preventing other things from happening. But let's just stick to one intense topic at a time. So we're going to wrap it up by talking about United States and the Soviet Union's stockpiles 
in the late 1970s in the U.S., the slowdown of production of nuclear weapons evaporated the economies of scale that existed in the 50s and 60s, and that made it too expensive to continue PNE testing. Years went without further development. Non-nuclear techniques were found to be cheaper. It used to be a lot cheaper to make nukes because they were making a lot of them. And as people started to get sketched out on nukes, they uh, the stockpiles like denuclearization is something that is very popular. I mean, I are there any people that are asking for more nukes? I can't imagine. <laughs> uh, maybe there are. That'd be so intense to meet a guy or a girl that uh, wanted the world to have more nuclear weapons. But as they became less popular, they became much more expensive. But social scientist Benjamin Sovacool, and it must be pretty cool to have the word cool in your last name. So according to this social scientist, oil and gas stimulation was considered the most promising economic use of peaceful nuclear explosions, but it produced oil and gas that was radioactive, which consumers rejected, and was the program's downfall. However, oil and gas were sometimes considerably naturally radioactive. The industry was set up and is set up to deal with that kind of contaminants in oil and gas and then so we're just going to end with a it does seem like there was some sort of progress towards making it more effective and safer because in 1976 project neva on the sredne botobinsk gas field in the soviet union was the most successful and profitable nuclear stimulation effort. It did not result in customer product contamination issues, and it was made possible by multiple cleaner stimulation explosives and the possible creation of an underground containment storage cavity. So it seems like they did master the storage cavity for containment of contamination. The Soviet Union retains the record for the cleanest low-fusion fraction nuclear devices so far demonstrated. Which takes us nicely into next week's episode where I'm going to talk about some fun stuff, a little bit of the pop culture surrounding Atomic Era stuff, some of the products that were proposed of things that would be used uh, and things that we do use that have nuclear technology in them. And so I'll, I'll just end it there. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really had fun researching it. I think next week is going to be a little bit more fun for me on the reading side because I'm going to be reading a lot of comic books.